Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Power of You. This afternoon, we're going to have a, an amazing time today. But before we get into that, there's a few things that I wanted to do and wanted to say before we get to our, our guest, a very, very special guest. I want to thank uh, several people for doing what they've been doing for us. That is one is Tribe Brothers Tailoring, and that's 5266 on Warrensville Road. And that Tribe Brothers Taylor is helping us out because they're sharing some of our books there. And Mr. Taylor, who is here at 12200 uh, Fair Hill, he's also helping us out by sponsoring the book. So I'm going to hold up this particular book. This is Lynching, Rope No Longer Required. This is the thing, this is the book that's in the market right now doing remarkably well. This is a book talking about the unarmed killing of black men, women, and children that's been all in the news. We want you to uh, have this book. Get the book. Go out and purchase the book. And with that also being said, we want to also tell you that we are on Roku TV. We're on Apple TV. We're on Fire Stick. We're all over the place, actually, aren't we? Yeah. And what we're doing is we know about unlocking the power of you and how we are powerful people. And there's information that is available to you. There's help that is available to you. And this podcast is all about you. Three things we say we want the podcast to always be. Number one, it must be relevant. Number two, we must be thought-provoking. And number three, we want to make sure that it's life-changing. And today we have a special guest with us. Again, I want to uh, talk about these two books as well because they will tie into what we're talking about today. This book is called The Lord's Prayer. And this book is all about the things that have happened with Jesus Christ. And it's talking about the prayer of Jesus Christ, particularly in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. And then for those of us who have not learned what it means to really surrender to the Lord, this book. 12 Principles of Spiritually Surrendering. It's all about what it takes to surrender, actually surrender to the Lord. Many of us talk about our surrender, but we have yet to do it. So please, you can go to Amazon.com and pick up any one of those three books, plus 17 other books that we have in the market as well. With that being said, now we're getting ready to turn to the young lady, my only guest in the studio today. We have some people behind the scenes, but this is there's a reason why this lady is in the building today. She has such a remarkable story. And believe me when I say she has a remarkable story, it's going to be unbelievable. Yet it's true. And as I said on my Facebook page, if you don't believe in God, after today, something's seriously wrong with you because this lady has a story to tell unlike any story that I've ever heard. As a matter of fact... I went out of my way to make sure she showed up today to be on the podcast today. I, only thing I didn't do is beg. <laughs> but I was about to because if you said, no, 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 we were going to beg for you to be with us today because of your story. And, man, it's an awesome story. So my solo guest today, I'm going to introduce her. Then she can reintroduce herself. And then we're going to get into why she's here today. And I asked my, my partners back here to remind me of certain things, but I'm going to remind myself today okay. how I met her. I want to tell you guys how I met Miss Cynthia. <laughs> Miss Cynthia was not, <laughs> I was, I was at Fairhill. I was invited to talk to some grandmothers. Yes. I'm a grandmother. She's a grandmother. <laughs> and we were talking to the grandmothers and we're doing conference calls for the grandmothers. And Cynthia happened to be one of about 18 people back yes. there, uh, 18 people on the line. Cynthia was not one of those quiet types. She wants you to know she was on the line. And she was basically 
Try to put me in my place a little bit. Check, check. Check me. Yeah, that's what it was. Check me, put me in my place a little bit because of the, the things that she didn't agree with. Yeah. But let me tell this. Even though she didn't agree, she agreed because God was in the mix. Yes, absolutely. God had a plan for her to be the person she was on the line that day and the following month, too. So it was two months that she did her thing in the background. Yes. But God had planned for us to meet. Then we met again last week. And uh, when we met again last week, she shared something. And when she shared the stories that we're going to share with you guys, the viewing and the listening audience today, what she shared was nothing less than a remarkable story. I'll say this much. This lady was not supposed to live. She's not supposed to be here today. And she's going to fill in the blanks as to why. Her name is Cynthia Bradley Lewis or Cynthia Lewis. Lewis she will, she will uh, <laughs> preface the one that she wants to. I will let her begin to tell a little bit about herself. And trust me, this is an unusual but amazing story. That's why we took the topic today, Amazing Grace. You are an amazing person. God's grace is amazing. And now I want you to introduce yourself and... Tell them a little bit about yourself before we get into your real reason for being. Okay. Hi, everybody. Good morning, or good afternoon, rather. Uh, yes, I am Cynthia Lewis, born Lewis. I was married Bradley. I was actually married twice, Cynthia Jones and Cynthia Bradley. And um, I thought that uh, being a young married person and having children was going to be like my entire life because that's what I wanted and that's how I chose life. And unfortunately, it didn't work out that well for me. And then I remarried and went from Jones to Bradley. And uh, both marriages are testimonies within themselves. Um, I was slowly but surely coming out of the last name Bradley uh, facing divorce, and um, I had married a very good man who took on my three children with my first husband as his own, and um, he raised those children, and um, we had a pretty good life together, but again, it's another testimony. Um, during that time, when I thought that I didn't need him anymore, he wanted me, I didn't want him, God showed me in his own way. I know you're going to need this man eventually. Uh, shortly before divorce court, I was in a tragic accident. Well, before we get there, because I know that accident is really what we wanted to really get into yes. today. Now, I know also you mentioned the fact that there was some other aspects of the testimony. Mm -hmm. There was some physicality, some other things that were involved, correct? Yes. Uh, and we, if you don't mind, you can talk about those. Or if you don't want to feel comfortable and talk about those, we'll just go right into the accident. But um, that's up to no. you. Uh, it's, you know, yesterday when I met with Tim and I walked away from you all, the devil gave me 199 reasons not to do this today. Mm-hmm. That you're not prepared, you don't look well enough, your nails aren't done, your feet aren't all kinds of things, mediocre things that really have no value. 
And when I say that, I mean, I used to look at myself personally as a young person, as a woman, as most women do, as beautiful, charming, well-spoken, could get anybody I want, anything I want, do whatever I want. And um, I had to realize that I couldn't do any of that without Christ in my life first. And God led me from a huge church, a huge congregation, to a very small storefront building where they needed a choir, they needed a Sunday school teacher, they needed a multiple, multiple things in the church. And God led me to stay in that church. And at that particular time, I had no idea why. And... Um, I'm saying this first because I think that it's only by God's grace that I was saved because I was obedient. Because when I saw that there was no choir and no one to sing, I sang. And then when I got tired of doing it alone, I got a choir together. I became a Sunday school superintendent. I became a Bible study host. I became a lot of things. I was working very hard in my church, in that very small church. And there were many times that I didn't feel like it. I was tired because I had children to raise. And when you give your life to God, you it takes over something else. It takes precedence in your life. And sometimes I used to say, why am I picking up neighborhood kids and taking them to vacation Bible school? Why am I driving through the projects and picking up children off the streets and, you know, why did I go from a car and buy a van so kids could just ride in it, you know? And I never knew at that particular time that that was my savings account for what happened not too long after that kept those commitments. I had a very good friend who was the pastor's son, and his name was Kevin, Kevin Bell. And Kevin had nine brothers and sisters, and we were all very close, very good friends. And uh, Kevin lived in Washington, and he called me, and he says, Hey, Cynthia, would you uh, pick me up from the airport? I'm flying in. You know, Mom's having surgery the next day, open heart, and I'd like to surprise her. And don't tell anybody that you're coming to pick me up. And I kept my word, and I said, I would be there to pick you up. At the time, I owned a carpet cleaning business, and I was very tired. I had several accounts all over Cleveland, and I probably worked from Wendy's to McDonald's, just cleaning carpets and tables and chairs and just busy, busy, busy. And um, he called me midday and said, Cynthia, are you, Cindy, are you coming to pick me up? I'm like, yeah, dude, you know, I'll be there. I'll pick you up. And um, I... Got my little nap in, and when it was time for his plane to come in around 8 o'clock that evening, I went to the airport. Back then in 1994, you could go inside of the airport mm -hmm. and watch through the window, watch the planes land for your family. And um, the plane was delayed, first of all. And then after it arrived, I waited and waited, and all these people were getting off the airplane except for him. And in the end, as I got ready to walk away from where I was standing and waiting, he comes off the plane with another young lady. And I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, because he's my married friend. He's married and family and everything. I was like, no, he didn't come, you know, with someone else. And um, right as I started to question that, 
another young man who I'd seen waiting too, ran up and grabbed this woman and they embraced each other and they were all like, oh my God. It was like, like the worst flight of their lives where he said, literally, I thought that plane was going to fall. I knew this was it. And from our conversation, from receiving, from coming in from the flight to going to pick up his luggage, he talked about God. When we got into the car. Now, before you continue, there was a backstory to that, too. You mm -hmm. said it. What was his history before that? You've known each other for a while from what you told me yes. before. Now, he wasn't Christian then. He was not. Okay, was, but how long had you known one another? We had known each other for at least 12 years, okay. if not longer. And now he he shows up. And he's talking about God. He's, okay. Because he's, you know, he, and, I'm, and in my mindset, you know, we all talk about God. We scream Jesus when we're afraid, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I had parts along that I actually had to pay to get out the, the lot. And, um, and all of this means something. He said, wait a minute, hold up, sis. Let me get my wallet. His wallet was in his luggage in the back. And so we did all that. And as we're driving, I'm asking him, would you like to go to a hotel first, get you some sleep, and then you can take my car and do whatever you want to do. And he's like, no, just take me to your house. And, you know, we're just driving along. And um, all of a sudden, we hear thump. But the thump comes right after he says to me, you know, Cindy, I got another surprise for my parents. I'm going to not only surprise my mom at Mount Sinai Hospital when she wakes up the next day from open heart surgery, but I'm also going to talk to my dad and let him know that God called me to preach, and I'm going to be obedient. And we were just like, what? You know, huh? I said, what? Because I know it's a prayer that his father had asked of that and his, and his twin brother, too. And um, as soon as he, like, got those words out of his mouth, we get a hit, thump, bang. And I had never been in a car accident before, so I thought that I had hit a chuck hole or something with my car. And um, now, Who was driving, you? Or I'm, I'm okay. the person driving. Okay. I was driving. Yes, I was driving. And um, then the car was it was hit multiple times from behind and almost like purposely it was just hit so repeatedly and I knew at that particular time that if I went this way that I would hit the brake wall and uh, Kevin grabbed my steering wheel to to help me he just said keep your don't put your foot on the brake. Don't put your foot on the brake. Just keep, just go with me, go with me. And we ended up what I thought would be a safer area, which if you go this way, it's grass. This way, it's a brake wall. We were near the Eddie Road exit. At the time, I lived in Cleveland Heights, and Eddie Road is about the clearest, nearest exit from the airport coming in that you could take. You have to, you know, come through the inner city first. And I just remember my car just tumbling. And I just remember Kevin's last words to me was, oh, crap, you know, oh, crap. And um, he said, it's okay. It's okay. And I don't know if we were still crashing when he said it's okay or if we had already crashed, but... 
For some reason, I can just remember him saying it's okay. And now, from this point, I'm blank because I couldn't tell you anything else. But there were, there's a school near the Eddie Road exit, an old school, elementary school, whose backyard faces the freeway. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there were two gentlemen there um, doing their thing, drinking and doing whatever, hanging out. And they saw when the whole accident happened, according to them. And back then, car phones were relevant. And so people were waving from the street that an ambulance was on its way. And so they said that they walked over to the car to tell us that an ambulance is coming. And at that particular time, my friend, Kevin, said um, to Allah, as if to say thank you. Now, he was not wearing anything to show that he was Muslim or suggest that he's Muslim or anything. And that's what, to me, informed me, made those witnesses seem honest and true because how else would they have known that he was Islamic? And um, they said that when they looked at him, he was moving around, and he was looks like he was getting some stuff out of my face and trying to clean me up, you know, to make sure I was okay. He was paying attention to me. And the uh, young men said as they turned to walk away from my car, they saw the train coming. So they screamed back, like, oh, my God, there's a train coming. Get out. Get out. And Kevin wouldn't get out because I was the one pressed behind the wheels, and he was free, and he stayed there with me. The train hit my car head on. A train hit my car head on, going more than what the news said, 88 miles per hour, and carrying millions and millions of tons of steel cars, coal, and such. And when it hit my car, when it made impact with my car head on, it hit my car from about that Eddie Road exit back down to East 55th Street. So we were drugged. And when they finally got to my rescue, they had no idea Kevin was in the car with me because the passenger door had been ripped off of the car. And when they went back to inspect the tracks, it's where they found Kevin's body on top of the car door with his head severed. And the news had put out so much information, you know, that it was a love triangle, that I was, like, giving up my life, and I sat on the railroad tracks. No Mm. one knew at that particular time that I was... No one knew, I guess, publicly at that particular time that the car was hit first, then hit by the train. No one knew how the car possibly got to that set of railroad tracks. And then there's a pause just for you, number one, for you to get a breath, and two, for people to understand what you're saying. You were not only hit by a drunk driver in the car and then hit several times by other cars. Yes. But then you were also followed up with 
being hit by a train. Yes. And to have something like that, and, and I, I'm trying to grasp it even now. It's hard to grasp that someone is here, and I'm going to let you continue your story, that you're here <laughs> after being hit by a car, several cars. Uh, well, I was hit by one, the one car. One gentleman continued to hit my car. His name was Paul Kajakas. He was, his father was mayor of Paintsville, and it kept it very, very quiet. Mm. And he actually, he hit and ran. And by the time he got home, he saw on the news that this car, had a Pontiac Grand Am, was hit by a train. So he called the city of Bratnall and told the city of Bratnall that the car that was hit by the train also hit him. Assuming that we were both going to pass away and there's no witnesses to say who, what, you know, who's telling what story. And, um... When my when I was discovered, they were, I guess, using um, first uh, um, the jaws of life to cut me from the wreckage because they couldn't tow the car with a body in it. And again, sometimes when I tell this story, the story changes, but it goes along with your memory and what mm-hmm. you what you remember, what your heart chooses to remember and chooses to forget. Um, But I'm repeating what was in the news and what was in the paper and what witnesses told. And um, so I had to watch the film several times because they were trying to figure out what happened. And so they would bring the TV cameras in on me so that I could like kind of tell them what's going on. But every time I saw myself, I saw something different because I was looking for what happened to me. My nose was white from my face, but never did I see any blood. Never did I see my face distorted. Mm-hmm. My jaws were crushed. My back was uh, not broken, but badly fractured. My neck collarbone is still high because they would have had to break my back in order to push the bones all back into place. My wrist was severed from my hand. This wrist was severed from the hand. And they uh, superglued my face back together. Now, as you continue that, you were saying that the accident was severe enough that even with uh, what they found mm-hmm. of you, they really weren't anticipating a survivor, no. someone alive. Your your passenger was already dead. Yes. Do you you were in a vehicle that was pushed from approximately Eddy Road down to Fifty Fifth. Yes. It was at 55th they, they're making the determination that it was somebody actually in the car. Yes, after they, um, you know, kind of backtracked, they go back and do the inspections mm-hmm. on the road to see what had happened. Later, I was told that my car flipped 19 times, mm-hmm. that the car just kept spinning, spinning, spinning. As the train is pushing it? Before the or train before. hit. Mm. And then the train, then the train... The car landed back on all four tires, 
flattened, but facing eastbound, and the train was coming westbound. So it was as if I was already smashed in the car before the train even hit the car, which is why they say um, Kevin was picking the glass and stuff from my face and just checking on me to make sure I could move because my legs and my engine was literally in my lap, and there was no way to pull me from the car. And so... Now, you just said... The engine was in your lap, so the yes. car has been compressed. Yes. And the engine is on you. The engine is on me. I'm still running. Still running. And this, and I, I apologize if I sound like I'm rambling back and forth. No, you're not. No, you're okay. Right before we got on the freeway, I had said to Kevin, like, oh, my God, I need gas. I didn't get any gas. And he looked at the needle and he said, oh, women drivers, you know, girl, you got more than enough gas. Don't worry about no gas. I'll fill you up later on. And that's by God's grace because had my tank been full, it would have exploded. After they used the jaws of life to get me from the car, there were still parts of me that was tangled in the car. And so they used the fire hose. They couldn't get me out quick enough because they didn't know whether or not I had a tank of gas or mm -hmm. not. So you can, like, literally hear them in the videos cursing, swearing, some saying forget about it, uh, fire departments, because there were several, uh, saying forget about it. You know, you're wasting your time, and just pull her out. Just pull her out, and then some some of them, thank God, who cared enough to say, no, you'll break her neck if you just pull her out. You know, some, some were like, just do your job, you know, and some were like, no, you know, treat her like she's human, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but the coroners were there on the scene, and um, they said, that tank is going to blow. That tank is going to blow. So they used the power hose to shower the car down so to water down the gas tank. But the water hit me so hard and was so cold that I flinched, and they said I growled, like, ow. And then you actually hear some of the firefighters saying, I told you, I told you, she's alive, she's alive, she's alive. And so... Um, so to that point, they were thinking you were already gone. dead in the car. Mm -hmm. So it's much like, oh, just get, get the body out of the car until... God somehow caused the fire department to throw the water on you. Yes. And the water hits you enough. And even with that, I'm still thinking you have an engine on you, mm -hmm. compressing the car, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and assumed to be dead. Assumed to be dead. And yet the water did enough mm -hmm. to get you to at least flinch and move mm -hmm. for somebody to say, you know, there's a survivor. Yes. And I don't know quite how long what short period of time or how long it took for all that to happen. But I do know that by the time they were putting me in the ambulance, they were asking, I remember this part, them screaming at me, who was the man in the car? Who was the man in the car? So by that time, they had found Kevin's body on the tracks. And um, they said, the man in the car is my friend. His name is Kevin. And... 
I had to say that because when I told them who he was, then they must have, I don't know, how they found his full name or what have you, but then they called his parents to let them know that their son was in town and was hit by a train, killed by a train, because I didn't tell them that I couldn't talk. And no one knew that he was with me. But he has a twin brother, and his twin brother said that he could feel something. And he said, Cindy, I called your phone. I'm like, do you know where Kelp Kelp was his his, um, pet name? Do you know where Kelp is at? And he said, I wouldn't answer my phone. He said, I just kept blowing your phone up. Like, if anybody know where he is, she know where he's at. And um, I just, you know, after going through so much, when they thought I was in a coma, and I was in a coma, but as I shared yesterday, I knew who was there. Oh, you know, we're going to wait till you get there. there. So (laughs) if you want to take a swig of your water, feel free to take a swig of your water because there's so much more to to share. Uh, So he was hit trying to help you in in the car then. So that's when the train hit and killed him then. Yes. And from what you're already telling us is that because he was your friend, and we don't want to point fingers at anybody, but because of the situation, the circumstance, they tried to blame you for everything that took place. Everyone but the family. Everyone but the family. So you, at least you had the family support, supporting you, but uh, whether it's the railroad or anybody else, it was your fault. There was something going on between you guys, and it, it, was, it was something... They made it like some sort of love affair, like, you know, uh, maybe we were breaking up, and maybe I said, no, you can't leave me, and, you know, throw the car off on set of railroad tracks or what have you. However, the car was on the railroad tracks, exiting the freeway, not crossing the train tracks and just sitting there and waiting on a, you know, in the middle of a, a crossing and waiting for a train to hit. Um, so it wasn't suicide. And, no. and it wasn't you planning suicide and, no. and you and him just uh, took that trip to go to uh, down the Eddy Road and yeah. went on the railroad tracks for right. training to hit. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I knew... Once I got to the hospital, I, I really don't have too much memory, but I do know that once I had gone through all the different procedures, I had 13 surgeries in one night, and um, when they got me to the hospital, the hospital was Huon Road Hospital. Now, you explained to me before, uh, we were talking yesterday, why Huon Road and not Life flighted to somewhere else. What was the uh, the reason behind that? Because Huron Road had the trauma center. Huron Road was in East Cleveland, and that's where they got all the stab wounds and all the gunshots and so forth. And had they taken me to Cleveland Clinic, they said I would pass away because they did not have all the proper tools and machines to check for bloodshed, blood internal bleeding, and that sort of thing. When they got me to the hospital... They immediately blew my body up with water because fluid alleviates pain and stops in turn stops supposedly internal bleeding. And it's kind of like if you're 
bleeding and you run underwater, the blood stops. So that was the idea. And um, my head was probably swollen five times the size it is right now, as well as my chest cavity. It's total bloated. And um, they called a surgeon, Dr. Donald Waite, open-heart surgeon, to come and um, see if she could save me. And she asked the question, and this is her story, how do you know that she's bleeding internally? They said, well, we stitched her, we glued her nose, had an ortho doctor um, do my nose, they had ortho do my hand, and they said that because it, they didn't know at that particular time whether or not I had health insurance, so they did what they could do that was free. It would mm. cost money to stitch my nose, restructure the bone in my face. It would cost money to restructure the hand and stitch the hand. It was nothing to super glue me. And um, it was so much going on with me that some things had to be delayed because it, it wasn't their intent to kill me, but to allow me to pass away peacefully. So there are a lot of things that they did not do surgically at that particular time, which may have put me in a better situation um, physically had I lived. But it's actually, honestly, by the grace of God, that they didn't do all this stuff to me. Because if they would have stitched my face, I would have been a crisscross, crisscross. You know, my whole face would have been, you know, stitch mm. marks. They um, found out later that I was still losing a lot of blood. And there was a nursing student from Case Western Reserve who had just did some tests with a Godiva at the university that if you have a body that continues to bleed internally. You have to run them through, not an MRI, but it's another, it's another imaging machine that picks up all the smaller parts, the insides. And at that particular time, because they listened to her, and she said she really fought for it, that they found that my ribs had broken from the car engine hitting me in the chest cavity, and my ribs stabbed me in my heart and ripped my aorta, mm. which is your main heart valve. And the only surgeon that they had, they had to have a specialist to repair aortic valve, was Dr. Waite. And Dr. Waite's testimony is that she had seven patients who passed that month after she did surgery that she couldn't take another death. So she says that she was in Chagrin Falls near her home, and she was in the turnabout, and it was raining very hard, and she said she hung up her, her car phone, and she said, please don't call me back, because by the time I get back from Chagrin Falls to Human Road, she's gone. And she's probably already gone. And she's got to be at least brain dead. And um, she said she, for the third time, hung up her phone. And she said the sky just lit up all these colors. 
and her car hydroplaned and just spun all the way back around. And she said she just looked up and said, okay. Hmm. She was talking to God. She's a Jewish woman. And she said, whoever she is, <laughs> I'll go back, you know, because don't take my life, you know, I'll go back. And um, her testimony is that she came back to Hume Road Hospital and she he, she saw the family in the room. I'd been there, this was about 3 a.m., and I'd been there since about 9.30 that night. And I was bleeding internally all that time. And um, she said she came into the cold room where they had me. And she said she looked at me, and she said my eyes were wide open. And she said, I can't do anything. I can't help you. Nothing that I can do. And she said she... And she's saying that to you? To me. She said she's talking to me. Because she said my eyes were over her. And she said my eyes wouldn't shut, probably because of the cut mm. in my face. And she had a medallion like this. And she said that I was holding it so tight. And she just took it off from around her neck and she left it there. And... She went back to the family room. She told my family and Kevin's family that there's nothing she could do for me. And she said as she was walking back, she remembered that. She forgot her medallion. And she said she came back into the room and she looked at me. And she just went to, she said she was going to not use any more words because she really felt like she was talking to the living and not to the dead. And she just wanted to shy away from it because she just knew that she couldn't help me. And she said she went to reach for her medallion, and this hand that was severed grabbed her hand. And she said it was hard as a rock. And she couldn't, she said she would have actually broken her finger. She would have tried to pry herself away. And she said, she looked at me and said, I got to go. And I'm so sorry. Your family is out there for you. And she said, "Just I just talked to her with my eyes. Mm. And she said, you want me to try? And she said, my eyes said, yes. Mm. And so she said she... She looked up at her nurses' students because when it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, that's all they have are students and interns. They don't have doctors mm. that time of night. That's when they rest. And she said, she told them to flip me over. And they were like, none of them had did that surgery, that procedure before. And she said, turn her over. And she said she held her hands up like that. And as they were scrubbing her in, she was walking into the family room being scrubbed in at the same time. I said, don't go to try. Like, I don't know who she is, but I'm going to try. And she told my family that because of all my injuries, nine times out of ten, I would not be able to walk again. And that the success rate was practically zero because she's already lost her patience and that she's the top surgeon there 
And she hasn't kept one alive yet. And she said, my mother said try. So she said, I was so badly broken through the chest cavity that they could not cut. Normally when there's open heart surgery, they cut you front cavity. She cut from the back of my neck around this way and removed my breast, my left side, and went in and also cut from the groin area to take that main artery from the groin, from the pelvic area. And she said, I was so broken up because my spine was fractured, my hip was broken, my hip was broken, my left pelvic was broken, my knees were broken, my ankles were broken. And she said, it's just, 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 I just didn't have really too much to work with. But she was able to get that vein and uh, repair that aorta. And every day, she, she slept in the hospital for a few days because she said, I'm not going to lose this one. I'm not going to lose this patient. And uh, they had all the machines and everything on me to keep me breathing because I could not breathe on my own. But every day that they thought I was going to pass away, when the nurses and doctors and team would come back to the hospital to expect to know that, and get your tears ready because she's passed mm -hmm. on, that I was still there. And I stayed on those breathing tubes for a little too long. You're not supposed to be on them, but for so many days... And I had a male nurse who, I don't know if he ever went home, that would talk to me every day and say, breathe. You gotta breathe, you got to live. Because if you don't breathe by yourself, they're gonna, and they're gonna put the tubes in this way and not this way. And he said, when they come, I'm gonna hold your hand and I'm gonna count with you and you're gonna feel like you're passing away, but you won't pass away because you went came through too much. <laughs> through those processes, through those procedures, even though I could not understand what happened to me, it was always someone thoughtful to not leave me there in the dark by myself, to put a TV in my room so, because I'm still human so I could hear what's going on in the outside world. And no one knew whether or not I had children because my children were very small then. And everyone who touched me was a stranger, not knowing anything about me, but knew that my life was worth living. And once they got those tubes out of me and I started breathing on my own, it was a fight. It was the fight of my life. It was really the fight of my life because had they had to put them back in, I would have had to go through surgery and all this other stuff. And it was just, and I couldn't swallow on my own because my mouth was not even wired shut. Everything about my mouth and my face healed naturally. When I began becoming more and more aware of what was going on, I would hallucinate as if I was there at the same time. There was a plane that had gone down in North Carolina, and there was one survivor. It was a baby. And they said the baby was saved by a crocodile. 
which which was wild because you know a crocodile. Mm-hmm. He had eaten. They said that if they had been eating the rest of the survivors on the uh, people who passed away on this accident, on this plane crash, passed because of the crocodiles. But this one crocodile saved this baby, and for some reason, I thought I was that baby. I said, "That's me. There I am, right there on the news," and I couldn't relate to being hit by the train. Now, was that something you pushed away at that point, uh, possibly in your mind, because you say you took the place of the the baby on the plane? Well, I didn't know I was hit by a train. I didn't. There was. I had no memory of being hit by a train. I only had a memory of something red, and the doctors couldn't make sense out of anything, and I couldn't make any sound with my voice except for red. Red. And someone figured out I was saying red, and my eyes would tell me, yes, that's what I'm saying, because I could not talk. I had to learn how to speak again. You know, I could not talk. I'm going to let you take a momentary breath again because it's important for the viewing audience and the listening audience to understand something. This is how God operates. And I don't care how you look at it. If you can listen to this story and say, there's no God, something's wrong, because only God could have brought you through the situation up to that point, because there's still more I know you have in you to tell. We want you to to share that. But I want everyone to understand how powerful God is and what he's able to do in a situation like this. You can't tell anybody what's wrong. Your eyes have to tell the story and have to convey the story. Mm -hmm. You have a necklace on you or holding a a pendant that didn't belong to you, but you have a mangled, messed-up hand. Mm-hmm. But you're still able to move it and grab it mm-hmm. and hold on to that. You have a, a doctor who comes in who was fearful of losing another patient, so she didn't even want to take that opportunity to do it because she already knew. Mm-hmm. In her mind, you weren't going to make it. Yes. And she wasn't even going to come to the hospital. No. And God intervened on the freeway, take the car, turn it around, and head her in the direction Back to the hospital. To the, back to the hospital. When you tell me there's no God, something's wrong, because only God could have did that. And she knew from what you're saying, she looked up like, okay, I got it. But even when she got there, she still had those moments of doubt, of hesitation. I don't know, maybe not, until she got in there with you. Until she got in there with me. And she came out, she said to me, that your God must be one awesome God. Amen. And that's a God that I think I want to serve mm. because it wasn't me that saved your life. It was him. Amen. Because you're still not supposed to be here. And she says, you you only have a good 10 years with that aorta valve because after that, it's not natural. It's either going to fail you or it's just going to stop. And that'll be the end. But at least I was able to give you enough time. Well, that accident happened in 1994, and I was in my 30s. I'll be 60 October 11th. Hmm. See, that, this is, that's why I say your story, even to this point, I cannot conceivably accept or believe somebody can listen to it and say, uh, you know, that was just a freak thing that happened. It was an accident, you know. Uh, the doctor couldn't put, you know, from everything you've said, from head to toe, you were a mangled mess. Yes. 
And to say, and you shared the other day, you said they super gluing me together because they didn't believe, why, why are we going to spend money? First off, we don't know if she has insurance. That's right, did not know. So we're only going to do the minimum amount for her because ultimately she has zero chance of living. So it went from zero to maybe five. Five beats zero. Ten beats five. But when you're saying that every part of you was broken and mangled and messed up, and for a doctor, I, I give doctors credit. They can go to school and they can learn how to put things back together. And we're going to talk about it shortly, too, because there's a mentality that goes with that, too. They can fix the body, but what about the mind? Yes. That's the other part that we don't really focus on, and we, we will attempt to focus on that as well because that's imperative and it's important because there is that thing that happens to a lot of people who survive they go through a survivor's guilt because you begin to look at the other person who didn't survive. Why am I here then? Why was I left? But God left you for us to meet, for you to share this story again, and, and as many times as necessary, share the story because God, and I use this term, he favored you in his own way to bring you to this point in your life. And you say that was 1994, yes. and they were still counting you out. You didn't, you weren't able to walk yet. Could not walk, said that I would never walk again, and that they were going to, even though they super glued this hand, even though they super glued this, all oh, this was in a knot and swollen this big, and it just turned black like this table. It was just dry rotted. And when my children were able to visit me, my oldest son would come and take the Lister, the little uh, medicine bottles, the Listerine bottles, mm -hmm. that, the little toothbrush kit that they give you. And mine would just pile up like because I couldn't brush my teeth and I couldn't my, wash my mouth out, but I just have these bags and bags of toiletries here. And one day my son, JJ, said, Mom, he's talking to me and I can't talk back. I can't tell him no. Like that, your hand stinks. Mm -hmm. And so he opened up uh, the bottle of Listerine and he poured it in my hand. And when he poured it in my hand, it burned me so bad. And when I screamed, the nurses came in the room and said, What's going on? What's the matter? And I'm just grunting. Well, that burn proved that I had life in that hand. Mm. And if I had life in that hand, that this hand could be saved. And it's not the perfect hand. And sometimes it gets really big and black and changes colors and all that. But I can do things. I can use my hand. My hips were broken. They said I'd never walk again. They would bring a bedpan, the silver ones, and put it on my bed, put it underneath me. And all my bowels and everything had to be induced because I didn't have any muscles to push anything on with my own. And for me, it felt like I was on those bedpans for ages, like hours. Like, why did you just leave me here like this? And so I would wiggle until I knocked the bedpan from underneath, underneath me. But they said I wasn't going to move at all. But I was able to move. I was very hard-headed. As a patient, I did everything they said I could not do. Mm. I did. And they would warn me, we're going to strap you to the bed. But then someone else would come in and say, is she moving? She, how's she moving? Mm. And one night, I was freezing cold. Literally, I was so cold. 
And I'm like, why am I naked? Why did they have this? I was so scarred up and so badly bruised that they could only keep a sheet over me and not clothes or anything. And it felt like I had been ringing this buzzer forever. And no one would come to help me. So I figured out through my my cast and everything how to find the buttons. You know, I watch how people would do me in the room. I watch, mm-hmm. I pay attention with my eyes. I'm looking at what they do. I, I know I can't do it, but I didn't know my limitations either. But I figured out how to use my elbows and press against buttons. And I got the bed up enough where I could wean. And I reached to the bottom of my bed to get the blanket off of my feet. And at that point, a nurse was coming past my room. She said, what? Oh, my God. You know, and I, and I thought I did something wrong. So I fell back in my bed like this, like, oh, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, all the alarms went off. And by 3 a.m., all these lights were on over my head. And all these specials were in the room. And it's like, hey, hey. Hey, hey, do you feel this? Hey, did you? what did you do? And I'm like, you know, I still can't talk. You know, I still can't use my words. And they said, did you sit up? And they're screaming at me, did you sit up? And I guess it was something funny. So I smiled, and they said, I always smile. And, and I said, yes. And they said, can you do it again? Mm-hmm. Do it again. Do it again. And um, I was like, oh, okay. And so I. So what you're saying is sometimes stubborn helps? Yeah, I was bad. I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but I showed them how from my left side was distorted because of the open heart surgery. But, but you know, it's like she might lose this whole side as if I had a stroke. Mm-hmm. But at least my heart is beating. And so... I showed them how I figured out where those buttons were on the bed. And I sat up, and they said, your spine is broken. How how you, mm. how, what in the world? You're, you're, they're like, you know, and they're talking almost in Greek to one another, you know. And the nurse came in, and she said, you did so good. You did so good. They're going to take you to therapy because if she can sit up for the last, to the count of 10, if you can sit up for the count, to the count of 10, they got to work with you. They got to help you. They got to, you know. And when they came to get me, to take me down, x-ray, do everything. I think I had x-rays every day, literally. But when it came for this particular x-ray, they got me from bed and John you probably know about them lifts because they can't pick your body up so it's like a big old sheet and a big old one two three and one two three and boom <laughs> however you however you land <laughs> and then you feel like oh straighten me up you know and you're just cold all over but I said I think I can sit up in a wheelchair he said, you can sit up in a wheelchair. And I said, chair, chair, chair. I wanted to do up, up, up. And I was using those words even before speech therapy. 
I was able to use those words because I was trying to get my point across. And um, they put me in a wheelchair, and my body was just, because it was just, by this time, I had been in the hospital and on my back for about six months. And never moved to the step-down unit because I was always in intensive care. And they had transferred me from Huron Road Hospital to Hillcrest Hospital because Hillcrest is an open-heart specialty hospital. They have a hospital wing just for open-heart patients. It's a very quiet zone, very, you know, and I could never have a roommate or anything. I was always by myself. And uh, at this hospital is where I stood up for the first time. You know what? It is, you know, and we only have three minutes left. Oh, my gosh. Okay. The podcast, this time is up. <laughs> uh, we need to have you back. We need to have you a part two because there's so much. Uh, you, you know, we just got you to the point of sitting up. Sitting we right have there. to get you to walking because that's that story that I, I said that my crew was supposed to hit me with and remind me of. We got that Randall oh. Park story that has to come in here eventually. So that's, that's what is, is coming. So if you are available next week, I, we can push other guests back. I would rather have you come back and share this because looking at you, as you mentioned, the fact that you are all broken and to look at your face, you don't look like you had any kind of surgeries or anything. That's just showing you the remarkable ability of God to do the impossible. And that's why I said if anybody watching this podcast can come away and say, ah, you know, and that, that's a lot of malarkey. No. Here is a picture of what God can do. And you still have a, a spine problem, and you up there manipulating the bed and moving around and doing things that you were not supposed to be able to do at all. So you're on a recovery path that is unlike anything that I've ever seen or ever heard. And I'm not just saying that to, you know, falsely build you up. To be hit by a car, to be hit by a train, and to go through what you've gone through and to sit here and still and be able to simply say, you know what, God is good. Including a nursing home. And, okay, we haven't even talked about that. So next week we'd like to have you back again because there's some parts that you haven't shared with us that I would love to have you share because, again, we didn't even get into the psychological aspect of this because that is a recovery all by itself. The physical part is one thing, but the mental part is another. So, again, thank you because you hadn't even told about the, the beads on you and the, the, oh. the things that you've done. So. I'm going to ask you on the air here, would you like to come back next week and continue this? Because I think everyone would love to hear it. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to have a part two next week. Looking for you. Thank you for uh, being with us today on Unlocking the Power View. Awesome story today from Miss Cynthia Lewis. Looking forward to seeing you guys again next week. Continue it. Thank you. Bye,